This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm so glad that I get to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you can make better financial decisions in your life. If you're a regular listener, you know that it's time for me to hear your grievances about things I've said on the podcast or information I might have missed in our weekly Clark Stink segment. But instead today, we're going to devote today only to things about St. Patty's Day. <laughs> Just no. kidding. Just kidding. Happy St. Patty's Day to you. How come you, oh, your, your tablet's green. green. Here. Yeah, I know I'm going to get pinched because I don't have green on. Uh, my, uh, my phone case is green. Okay. So I'm okay. So our electronics are green. Uh, anyway, also in this episode, if you or someone you know has an iPhone, there's something you got to hear about something you need to do to protect yourself from thieves there's a crime afoot that is uh, an ugly throwback to the past in some ways. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do to protect yourself. So with that having been said, it's time for us to hear where my advice was faulty, off base, or incomplete. And today's Clark Stinks. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. On a recent podcast, Clark advised how to buy checks on the cheap. I want to know who still writes checks since they are the best way for identity theft. And even Clark advises against writing checks to pay bills and putting them in a mailbox. Checks are as outdated as bustles. David. So, David... Yes, checks have become a very dangerous thing. The weirdest thing, uh, and this is news of the weird category of bad things happening to good people, is if somebody steals your checks, writes checks as if they're you, prints checks with your account number, passes them, and those checks end up not being good, you get arrested in many jurisdictions, and you have to prove your innocence. It's just nuts. Checks are dangerous. That's why in country after country, they are eliminating traditional paper checks. We're not there yet. And if you are going to write checks, the cheap thing you should do, David, for somebody who still wants to write them is make sure you buy new checks from one of the discounters I've talked about, like the warehouse clubs or something like that, that are the new protective checks that at least prevent somebody, if they get a hold of your check, from changing the payee and the amount on them. But they still have your routing number, they still have your account number, and they can print new checks as if they're you, and that's where the real danger starts. I greatly enjoy your podcast, but as a finance professor, your tireless pushing of Roth accounts only gets a C-plus in my class. A 2017 study published in the Journal of Financial Economics illustrates the problem with this advice. 
I'll briefly summarize the takeaway. Your listeners are well aware of the volatility in investment returns, which is minimized by investing in a diversified index or target date fund. However, tax policies have also been highly volatile over the last century, which makes it difficult to assess which type of account is optimal for someone decades away from knowing their post-retirement tax schedule. In addition to tax policy uncertainty, retirement savers also face uncertainty in future portfolio returns and income potential, which can both lead to traditional accounts being superior to Roth accounts in many situations. With all of these unknowns, the optimal strategy for most investors is, of course, diversification. Investors are generally better off spreading savings across both types of accounts, just as we would diversify our investment choices. Thanks for all you and your colleagues do to educate your listeners and torture your listeners' children, Matt. Matt, thank you very much, Professor. And uh, so let me say something to you about my C+. Um, You're familiar with that grade. Uh, well, that would be a... <laughs> That would be, I passed kind of great. So I was not the greatest student, I'm sorry to say. Although I did get A in economics. I bet you did. Yeah. So, all right. There's a behavioral economics reason why you hear me push Ross so much is that I'm able to get people to save more money than I would otherwise. Uh, plus the issue of you bring up the uncertainty of tax brackets and all the rest. I assume with tax brackets that because of an aging population, we're going to see tax rates ultimately go higher, certainly not stay the same or lower. And that's a guess, and I could be wrong, and that's your point. But any match that an employer offers on, uh, let's say, a Roth 401k goes into the traditional side. So people are doing a certain amount of hedging, and there is a direct advantage, as you point out, to having money in both traditional and Roth accounts because there's a lot of planning that goes into what you pull from in your retirement years. So you are right again. All right, so here's my big bias for Roth, though. That's the behavioral economics thing. So you got a Roth that's capped at, let's say you're putting $6,000 a year in it. Let's just say for argument's sake, 6000 And you're doing that. You could do a traditional IRA or you could do a Roth. But that 6000 put in, because that's the ceiling, that's all you can put in, the 6000 put in a Roth is effectively 30% more money because you're using after-tax dollars that will never be taxed. So effectively, you have boosted significantly the amount of money you're saving for the future, which is why I'm the man from Roth, particularly with IRAs, because I'm able to get people to save more money than I can if they max out a traditional IRA. Okay, two about this topic. You don't stink, but I wonder if you live in a world that has more than 24 hours a day in it. Your comments about teenagers holding down jobs is a touch outdated. From juggling school, homework, and extracurricular activities while maintaining physical and mental health, it's a lot to expect a minor to manage. Teenage mental health issues are at an all-time high. Your comments make it difficult to move the needle from our teenagers being overscheduled and overstressed. Bonnie. Thank you, Bonnie. This one, Clark, you stink like the back end of a garbage truck in the middle of August. I played two sports in high school and college, and it wasn't possible for me to work after school. By the time I got home after practice or a game, I had homework to do. I agree with you on summer jobs, and I too had one from the time I was 15. I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, and in college, I had to really apply myself to my studies. I don't know if I would have graduated if I worked part-time. By the way, I got all my tuition covered for it in college as a result of my baseball ability. Jim. 
Jim, first of all, congratulations on to you for scholarshiping out in college. There is no sport I could have done that I would have gotten one penny of scholarship money, and that is fantastic. And both of you are right about what you say, that people can be so scheduled that working is not a possibility. So the compromise would be, as you said in your post in college, is working during the summer and high school, working in the summer. At least get some real practical work experience. You learn so many things on a job, including schedule, responsibility, and the rest, that I think are really valuable. Bonnie, going back to what you said, as a father of a teenager and a father of a young adult, I have an older adult child, I've seen what you're talking about with the mental health strain, the depression going on with so many kids. We've definitely got a problem. A lot of people try to pin it on social media, maybe so, especially for for girls. Social media may be undermining their esteem and causing mental anguish and mental health issues. We definitely have a problem there. And I wouldn't want to pile on something in the pressures of being a teen it would increase that. Um, I do see real value in work, and I'm sorry if I was too strident about it and didn't see a wider picture. Clark doesn't stink, but I was extremely disappointed to hear him discourage a listener that was run over by a motorist as a pedestrian from accepting legal counsel based on contingency. It is not uncommon for pedestrians who are struck by motorists to suffer serious injuries later in life that result from crashes where they feel fine at first. It's extremely difficult to hold these drivers accountable for their behavior later in life if proper procedures aren't taken. Also, when a pedestrian is run over by a driver, there is usually no one looking out for the victim, but instead are looking out for the driver. The police often cannot be bothered to investigate these and will look for any reason or excuse for drivers for their dangerous behavior. This listener would have not been hurt by hiring legal representation. Please be better, Clark. Pat. Pat, thank you. Uh, this is the same exact theme we had when I got hit by a car as a pedestrian. I chose not to hire a lawyer in that case. Your point is very well taken. And for me as a non-lawyer to say that the individual was making the right decision not hiring a lawyer was probably out of bounds. And I think at least consulting with a lawyer would be an acceptable choice. I In that situation from the question we had, I felt since the individual had uh, what seemed to be no injuries at all, it was going to be hard to find a lawyer who would actually want to take that case. You don't stink, but your recent answer to a listener smells like rotting eggs. A listener asked what they should do if they were expensive right now. (laughs) If they were nearing retirement but could not retire if they had to pay the mortgage payment. Rather than answering the question, you told them how crazy they were to pay extra on a mortgage at 1.875%. The listener was telling you that if they retired, the amount coming in was greater than the amount going out if they had to pay the mortgage. They were looking for how to eliminate that payment quickly so they could hang it up. I resonate with this listener, and you did not answer her or our question. I would appreciate an answer, Greg. Greg, thank you. Okay, so prepaying extra on that mortgage is not as efficient and becomes a straitjacket versus taking the prepayment money and putting it into savings or investment to use in retirement. You know, paying off a mortgage when the money's that close and you're paying off a mortgage 
with the first digit being a one, you're eliminating the flexibility of what is the best financial move later, and you can't eat your house. So the mortgage rate is so extremely low that even just putting money in savings right now, you can earn as much as 5%, let's say, versus a 1.875% mortgage rate. So we have a need here that listener had and that you're posting about, Greg, and that is to have more financial comfort in retirement. And the most efficient path to do it is money that would be diverted to go towards prepayment of principal on that mortgage is most efficiently used at this time building into savings or investment where the returns are higher and your money would work harder for you and give you more financial cushion at time of retirement. Clark wasn't clear on the type of suspicious mail that might come if someone takes out a mortgage on your property. From my experience, you will be inundated with solicitations for mortgage life insurance for the next six months. So if they start showing up out of nowhere, that should be a giant red flag, Stephen. Stephen, that was a beautifully said thing. And that is the type of mail that will come a whole lot right after any kind of debt is placed against the property you have a mortgage. I don't know how ripe you are. I defer to Krista on that matter. Anyway, my dog was walking me today, as often happens, and you were in my ear. You were doing a piece on shopping auto insurance. As usual, you were providing excellent advice while educating your listeners, but periodically you talk about which insurance companies have their customers' backs when a claim must be filed and which do not. My thought was that while shopping for price, shopping for quality should be given equal consideration, and that should have been part of that discussion. As you said, while all insurance companies are very good at taking premium money, some of them aren't nearly as good at paying justifiable claims. Kirk. Kirk, this is a beautiful point, and I do talk quite frequently about the insurers that are usually considered the elite insurers when the chips are down, when there's a claim that you're having to deal with. Now, historically, the two that have shown the highest in customer surveys have been Amica Mutual and USAA. Although I will say, um, surprisingly, it has not shown up in any survey results, but we have been hearing complaints from people with USAA having problems with claims. And I don't know if that's just weird, one-off kind of things, or if there is a new pattern I've got to be aware of with USAA. But when you talk about elite insurers, except for some smaller regional insurers, those two do stand above the crowd. And so this is a hard one. How do you choose between the premium you might pay and the quality of the company in the event that you do have a problem? Um, Krista has been with Amica Mutual for 15 years? At least. And they have been with you through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. And you, w- I doubt you even shop your insurance anywhere no, else because when you've had problems amica has been there for you and that's mm-hmm. what can create that kind of loyalty and why they are the best out there and they don't advertise i don't think at all hmm. they're a mutual they're owned by their policyholders, and their whole thing is they are there for their policyholders. clark you stink worse than a high school locker room mixed with axe body spray <laughs> When helping a listener deal with concert ticket fraud, you failed to mention how burner debit cards like on privacy.com can be set with purchase limits. 
If the ticket seller charges over your limit, the card declines. Thank you for this segment. It makes your show the actual best in the business. Cole. Cole, thank you. What an interesting suggestion. Uh, what that was about was people getting ripped off by really uh, shady, sleazy ticket sellers for concerts and sports events. And they'll tell you the price is so-and-so, and then they come and take a whole lot more money. And your suggestion, this has come up off and on over the years about uh, getting a burner card at privacy.com. And that is, how crazy is it that the concert business, the ticket sales for them are so fouled up that you've got all these sleazoids out there. And how do people know who's a sleazoid or not? And then people are having their money stolen. I mean, this is just a big, big mess. Not to mention the time that I had charges show up on my credit card for a concert for a zillion dollars for someone I had never heard of. I had such a fight on my hands to get that credited. Eventually, I did. But the ticket area, what a mess. Straight ahead, speaking of something that can be a huge mess for you, how about somebody is able through your phone to steal your hard-earned money, your savings, and your investments. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to tell you about something I first read on a tech blog, and then it's getting into the general media. There were two long-form stories in the Wall Street Journal about this just recently, and it involves the theft of your funds by stealing your iPhone. Now, people don't steal phones like they used to. It used to be that violent phone theft, you know, street crime, stealing your phone, that was a big deal. And then to their credit, Apple and various Android manufacturers and the cell phone providers themselves have all worked together to try to prevent these violent crimes. So the crimes just to have your phone and then fence it, just to steal your phone, sell it off in the marketplace, that is a thing of the past. So it was very distressing when I first read that this is a crime that has returned and specifically is targeting iPhones. It was a funny thing. I didn't see this on any of the blogs, but I saw in a Wall Street Journal story that it's been a mystery to people why the thefts have all targeted iPhones and nobody's targeting Androids. And apparently... Criminals don't think that anybody with an Android has any money. <laughs> the same vulnerability exists with both. I use an Android. Christy uses an Android. So many of us do among our team. But overall in the United States, Apple has emerged victorious. We're the one country in the world that Apple now has more market share with its iPhone than Android. All the manufacturers of Android combined. The reason the iPhones are being targeted is because the, the criminals think that's where the money is. So here's the vulnerability that exists with both, but has really only been targeted by thieves, is you'll be in a crowded public space. Could be any place. Could be a shopping center. Could be out in a park. Could be on a city street. Anywhere where there's a mass of people around you. And what criminals are doing is they're looking for marks. They're looking for people who are accessing their iPhone by punching in a code, a PIN code. They capture you doing it. 
I don't know if people are using binoculars. I don't know what they're doing, but they're getting your pen code when you're typing in on your iPhone. Now, your iPhone allows you to use biometrics of various types to get in your phone. And the ultimate solution to what I'm about to tell you about is only access your iPhone and you could be the one person with an Android that a criminal decides to target. Only access it in public places by biometrics, not by entering a pen. Because the criminal will grab your phone, run off with it, and they will instantly type in the pen that they observed you doing. They then immediately change your Apple ID and lock you out of your phone and all the stuff you have so you cannot wipe your phone clear. And then they will try that pen on, now I'm going to make you nervous, on other functions in your phone. They will try to Venmo themselves money or Cash App or Zelle money. They will try to access your brokerage account or retirement account or bank account. And remember two-factor authentication They access the account on your phone, and then they get a text that says, hey, is this you punching this one-time code? And then they steal the money out of your account. So remember, you cannot access your device. So obviously, anybody in security would tell you, don't repeat any code you use on an iPhone with any pen you would use for any financial thing that you have, or anything repeats as an access for anything you do that involves money or your email or anything like that. Okay, obviously. But forget all that. Even if you don't fix all those things, the only thing you got to know is in any public place, you do what we were told when there was all that rampant ATM theft. You cover the hand you're typing in your code on your phone with your other hand so that somebody with binoculars or looking over your shoulder does not see the code. Or better yet, Use biometrics only to get in your device. And I'm sorry to bring up another thing for you to be paranoid about. (laughs) All right, we'll go to questions. This is from Rob in California. I see that Clark recently bought a carbon monoxide detector to travel with when he stays in hotels. Since packing space is always at a premium, I'm just curious how many people have actually died in hotels of carbon monoxide poisoning, especially in the United States or other developed countries. It seems like that's something we would hear about if it was more than a bizarre freak occurrence. Does Clark plan to bring a water tester, an electrical tester, to be sure that those hotel rooms are safe as well? Just curious. I still love you, Clark. So my obsession with carbon monoxide, Rob, I don't know. I just, that's one that's always bothered me. First thing I do in any home I buy is I put carbon monoxide detectors all over the place. Um, I just don't want to die that way. And the hotel thing has actually been a first world problem of late in the United States because of hotel staffing issues. There have been more problems with uh, customers dying or getting really ill because of carbon monoxide leaks at hotels where they don't have proper staffing, they're not doing proper maintenance. A lot of times it's from the pool equipment that people are getting sick or dying from carbon monoxide poisoning. And at the same time, you're completely right. This is a rare event. I am worried about something that is a rare event. And there are just certain things that 
strike us psychologically or emotionally. And I know it's rare, but I worry about it. And so I have my little micro carbon monoxide detector for travel. This is from John in North Carolina. I'm 55 years old and I've driven only six cars since I was 16. Wow. Wow. I paid cash for all but two. And the first five of those were used Japanese cars, Honda and Acura. And I drove each of them until they conked out or reached about 200,000 miles. I bought my current car five years ago. It is a used German SUV. Not surprisingly, I've paid significantly more in maintenance with this car, and I'm feeling guilty about this. The car is paid off and has 117,000 miles. I think I could get another 80,000 miles out of it if I maintain it. I'm trying to decide if I should trade it in for something with a lower maintenance cost. Based on used car prices now, I think I'd probably end up spending about the same over the next three to five years to purchase a car I'd like less compared to the cost of maintaining the German car. What should I do? You can probably tell which way I'm leaning. Okay, John. So you've done so many smart things financially over the years with automotive transportation being the second largest expense we have in our lives. You said to yourself, you love this vehicle. You obviously have been very careful with money. And I know you're leaning towards dumping the car that you love for a car that you're going to be like, well, it gets me there. This is the one time you've treated yourself. So I'm going to shock you. And I'm going to encourage you to keep driving the vehicle. And if a year from now, you have just become really frustrated with the cost of maintaining it, the expenses and all that, your head and your heart need to be in the same place. They're not right now. So I'd keep driving it. Because when you say you would go for a vehicle you like less, this is the one time you've done this for yourself. When you reach the point that it's not fun anymore, that's when you dump it. Not yet. From Lex in Virginia. I really said that, didn't I? Uh, You did. I recently unfroze my credit at the three bureaus for two days. At only one of the bureaus did I need my PIN that had been created when I froze my credit, and that was because I unfroze that account by phone. Apparently, the three PIN codes I've guarded with my life for eight years are almost unnecessary. One can unfreeze their credit online with no PIN. So if I have someone's social security number phone and email password, I can unfreeze their credit online. What a clear case for strong passwords. Yeah. So this is something that has distressed me. The credit bureaus were spending too much money because people, as they moved, they kept losing their pen codes that you had. You had a unique pen code for your credit freeze with TransUnion that was different from the one with Experian, different from the one from Equifax. The idea being that criminals may have a way of getting your social and address and all that other stuff, but they're not going to have your unique pen codes. Well, the credit bureaus were having to pay so many people to deal with issuing people replacement pens that they were like, forget it. And so they've really lowered, watered down a little bit the value of credit freeze. Not that I would tell you not to do credit freeze, But what you said about making sure you have a really great password on your Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian accounts, absolutely essential because if you use a lazy one that you've used elsewhere or whatever else, criminals may have breached enough of your information, they would figure that out. 
they unfreeze your credit and they're off to the races applying for credit as if they're you. So unfortunately, the old know thy customer rule no longer exists in business and finance. And that's why identity theft remains such a big hassle. And credit freeze, even though it's imperfect, is the best tool we have available. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen, or if you watch us do the show, to listen or watch, or you do a combination of the two, appreciate it. Remember, we're here for you around the clock. The sun never sets on Clark.com. Here to serve you, your financial questions, your money issues. We are here for you at Clark.com. Have a great one.